With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everybody and welcome back to truth and justice this is our fourth installment of our series on the murder of jody jones and i am once again today joined by dr sandra lean we're going to try to get through this as quick as possible there is a five five hour time difference between us so we don't want to keep dr lean up too far past her bedtime uh and so this week's episode we're going to cover the the case against luke how he was prosecuted uh but dr lean you said there was something you said you had a correction that you wanted to make uh real quick from last week that's right. Yeah, I I said in last week's episode, um, when the search trio when the search trio left from Jody's mother's house, but I meant from Jody's grandmother's house. Right. So simply to get that right. Yeah. Good. I'm glad we get that right. And actually, along those lines, I don't remember if I asked you this last week. Is there a lot of my listeners picked up on very quickly that the timing of when Jody's mother was supposed to be on the phone to her grandmother? I think that was like that call ended at like 1103 or something like that. And then how quickly uh, the search trio was at the beginning of the path, that seemed impossible. And so the question was coming up when when Jody's mother was talking to her grandmother, do we know that that was on her grandmother's landline or could it have been a cell phone she was talking to her on? It's recorded as being on the landline. Do you have any thoughts on that, how they managed to get from one place to the other so quickly? What I do know is in the appeal judgment, the judges said that the search trio left from Jodie's mother's house just a few minutes from the top of the path. Now, I don't know if that was a mistake on their part or if they knew something we didn't, because it is physically impossible for them to have left when they said they did from the grandmother's house and got to the, the junction of the paths where they met Luke in the time that they said they did. Right. If they were on foot, if they were driven there, it's possible. But they insisted they were on foot. Yeah, I wonder if the. I'm sure there are lots of theories, and we'll get into this. But as I, I, I wonder if it was someone else that her mother was talking to at grandmother's house. Maybe has that been a thought? It's possible. Um, no way of knowing it. All we have is their word for it that that's who was on either end of the phone. Gotcha. Okay, well, with that, we're going to move into, and we'll try as we go through this to not uh, not get too much into kind of arguing against these points. Um, we'll try to you know, present this case as for the people that want to know, how did Luke get convicted, that this was the evidence that was used uh, to convict him? Because I'm sure everybody, much like me, after hearing these first few episodes and knowing what we know, it seems 
insane that he got convicted, but there was evidence used against him. So I'll let you kind of walk us through what was the prosecution's case against Luke? How did they convict him? The three main planks of the prosecution's case were special or guilty knowledge, and that was the claim that Luke led the searcher straight to the body, so he must have known where it was. Eyewitness identification. Now that that hinged or depended almost entirely on the Andrina Bryson sighting. That's the lady that saw the couple that she claimed were Jody and Luke at the East House's end of the path. Mm-hmm. There, there was a, a slightly less significant sighting at the new battle end, and by less significant, I mean by the prosecution's reasoning, it was slightly less significant. And the third plank was Luke's lack of alibi. The other evidence that was brought in at trial, so things like the the Delia evidence that we spoke about last time, mm-hmm. uh, the Parka, the Ma- Marlon Manson obsession, the Satanism, all of that. These were, and, and the pro- prosecution pretty much admitted these were peripheral. The, the three central planks were what they depended on to get the prosecution. Right. So, so we'll, we'll kind of go through those. The first one being, uh, that he had guilty knowledge. He led him to the crime. How did they, we, we know what we've heard from the witness statements about the dog finding him and everything and, and the family even, I think you said it was Steven said, described how high the dog's head was even on the, the V in the wall. How did they present that at the trial in a way to convince the jury that it wasn't the dog that Luke just went right there? Well, the the trio, the search trio witnesses had changed their story by the time it came to trial. So the jury wasn't aware of their earlier statements at that point when they gave their initial evidence. They said things like, um, Luke just went to the wall and went straight over. He showed no emotion. He was completely normal. He didn't react. Everybody else was in hysterics, but he wasn't. Uh, the defense did try to put to them that they'd said something different in their earlier statements. But I certainly didn't understand back then the concept of statements being adopted on the stand. And that simply means if the witness doesn't agree that that's what they said in the earlier statement or says something like they've written it down wrongly or that's not what I meant. The jury can't use it as evidence. They can only use what they agree to on the stand as evidence. Wow. That's and so yeah, in the United States system, that would, you know, that's an, it's impeachment evidence, right? So you would bring up prior statements to impeach. And generally the process for us would be Okay, did you say this previously? If they say no, you show them their statement. Can you read that? Isn't that what you said? And then, and then it's kind of left up to the jurors as the fact finders for them to determine which one, you know, what they believe. But so in Scottish law, if they say no, I didn't say that, it's just not allowed to be. Yeah, it's just written out at that point. Wow. And so were, and were they the, did they get presented with those previous statements at, at trial? I don't think they were, they were handed them but the content was read out to them right and um janine jody's sister in particular was was really quite aggressive in her uh renunciation of those statements and basically said that the police must have written it down wrong 
several times, sounds like, right? I'm sorry, say that again? And several times, right? That, that they said they had yeah. written it down wrong. Okay, so they, they that's their kind of first stanchion of their case is that he had guilty knowledge. He led him right to the right to the body. Let's talk about the eyewitness statements. The one there, the most important one was uh, Adrian, is her name? Andrina. Andrina Bryson. Tell us about that statement, because we had some questions come up about that statement this far, because like, we, we've read, like, there's this, this window of time between 454 and 459 or whatever it is. Um, so so kind of give us the details of how that statement, first of all, was it solicited? Did she just come to the police with it? How did the statement come to be? He went to the police the day after Jodie was found. So Jodie was found, as I said, just before midnight on the 1st of July. Uh She wasn't named in the media until around 3.30 that afternoon. It wasn't confirmed it was her. And then Andrina Bryson called the police. She said tea time, so around about 5 o'clock, 5.30, to say that she'd seen something on the path the previous day that might be significant. Mm -hmm. And she gave her first statement and described these two people the male was late teens, early twenties, medium build, very thick hair, standing up in a clump at the back, wearing what she described as fishing style clothes. So a matching jacket and trousers that she would expect a fisherman to wear. She didn't see any of his facial features and like I said, put his age, mid teens, early twenties. The girl, she couldn't describe her face at all because she only saw her from a back view as she was approaching in the car, and then the side view as she passed this girl standing side on. And she described the girl as wearing blue sweatshirt and lighter blue bootcut jeans. She didn't know for sure even if it was a girl. She only assumed that because of the build. Okay. So that was her initial statement and description. Her time for that sighting was approximately 10 to 6. So 5.50. Okay. Because she had gone from their home, unloaded the shopping and the kids and started making dinner when she'd got a call on her, her mobile phone from her husband. Mm-hmm. And that came in at 25 past 6, which she reckoned was about half an hour after her sighting. Are, are we talking about 25 past past five or past six? Six. Oh, okay. Because that's, yeah, that's not the time that they have, that we read no. about now. Okay. No. The following day, she took her phone to the police to show them the call from her husband to confirm the time. Mm-hmm. To show that, that, you know, that was an estimation about half an hour after she'd seen this couple by the time she got home. And this was when her husband called. The police then went back to her in the August. She did say that she wouldn't be able to identify either of them from facial features because she didn't see faces. Right. She'd only be able to identify from clothing. The police went back to her in the August with a spread of photographs, most of them on dark backgrounds. The one of Luke was taken with a Polaroid so for the people that remember Polaroids, the, the instant prints out mm-hmm. with a white band top and bottom. And he was, and, and this was brought up in court, he was 
very differently, looked very different to all the others in the in the spread. But she did say, Andrina d- did say when she was shown the spread that this one looked the most like the person she'd seen. Okay. She later explained that by saying you had the same shape of face, which is as close as she could get. Okay. So how does, is the internet just wrong or how does that time become 4.54 to 4.59? By the time this came to court, there was this story that she couldn't remember which route she'd taken back from the supermarket where she'd done her, her shopping to go and look at a house that was for sale in East Houses, which is how she came to be there mm-hmm. in the first place. There were two particular routes that she could have taken, and she couldn't remember which one she'd taken. But again, at trial, the prosecution produced bank details that suggested that the supermarket receipt system, the time must have been wrong because the time logged in the bank details put it so much earlier. And then from there, they worked backwards to these two potential routes, ending up at 4.49 to 4.54. Okay, so they and they just disregarded her saying that it was 30 minutes before that phone call at at 6.25. Yes, that was all dropped because this, this bank record apparently... Now, this is, you've got to remember, this is back in the day in the UK where you didn't swipe your credit card. It went into a machine and printed out a, a docket that you had to sign. Right. And then that was logged on the machine and then went to the bank. And I remember back in those days, sometimes a transaction would turn up on your bank statement three days after yeah. it happened. Because they had to mail those in back then, didn't they? Was it still that yeah. time when they had to mail the, the receipts into the bank or take them to the bank? Yeah. What were the circumstances? Because she, because she, she was—I just want to be clear—she was driving past, right? She was when she had the sighting when she saw them there. Yeah, she. Th- there, there was at the time a very, very sharp bend in the road mm-hmm. where just, just where you go into the entrance to Rowan's Dyke Path. Slightly different now. There are new houses. So there, there's a roundabout there, but back then it was a really, really sharp. If she was coming from East Houses, left-hand bend. Mm-hmm. that she would have to navigate around with two kids in the car as she was making this sighting. There was something else that came up in court in her evidence when it was put to her. She was asked by the defence which side was the New Battle High School sign on as you were driving towards the sighting. And she said it was on her left. Now, there is only one New Battle High School sign, or there was, the, the school's gone now. Uh-huh. And if it was on her left, she was actually coming in from the opposite end of New Battle, of East Houses, rather. And the, be- the, ba- the bend now turns to her right. So in order to see anything in the lane, she would have to look over her shoulder as she drove past. That wasn't explored any further at trial. So we don't even know today whether she came from the top through East Houses, and the sighting was on her right, or if she came from the other direction and the sighting was on her left. Right. And just for the Americans listening, in Scotland, your driver's seat is on the right side of the car. Yes. Yeah. That's opposite from us. We're on the the other side. So when you, 
Uh, so what you're saying, he, if, if she was looking to the left, that meant she had to look over her shoulder across the car through there. And also, I think it's important to point out that she didn't know she was looking for anything. She just was driving no. by. Yeah. And this came out later. No. And she claimed she didn't know Luke or Jody, which, again, became a bit controversial later. Right. So then in court, if I understand correctly, she was asked on the witness stand if the person she saw was in the courtroom and she failed to identify Luke. Yes. So so we still have Doc ID in Scotland. Um, so he's standing there in the dock, flanked by two security guards, mm-hmm. and she can't identify him in court. Okay, and that is something that, that the jury can then consider that she, but they can still also consider that he was identified as the closest to looking like the person before. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What was the other eyewitness for the prosecution? There were two sisters-in-law who claimed to have seen Luke at the new battle end of the path about about quarter to six. Okay. So 45, 50 minutes after the Andrina Bryson sighting at the opposite end of the path. Uh, they described a lad, a youth, standing against a gate, looking at the pavement. They described him as having dark hair, 14 to 17 years old, wearing a long, dark-coloured jacket, potentially green. That initially was as much as they could say about about him. And the prosecution used this to claim that this was Luke. So... We, we spoke last time about the, the time scale, the, the time of death being 5.15 and then the mutilation and the stripping. And, and this is this is 5.45, 5.50-ish. And this is Luke standing on a busy road in broad daylight, having just committed the murder, not agitated in any way, just standing there looking at the pavement. 
And they use this as another sighting of Luke near to where Jodie was murdered. However, these two witnesses identified Luke from a newspaper photograph. The police took the newspaper to the witnesses and said, is this the person that you saw? But it was still allowed as evidence. So that sighting by the prosecution's theory would be after the murder and they didn't they didn't say anything about any blood or anything like that on him? No. Okay. No. He was just standing there. Uh, I want to circle back real quick to Adrena's sighting. Uh, you mentioned that she was wearing uh, bootcut jeans and a blue sweatshirt. Is that what Jody was found to be? Well, she wasn't. She was nude, but the, was were those the clothes that were found near her? A blue sweatshirt and bootcut jeans. No. And seven days after the murder, the police did a, a reconstruction of Jody leaving her home in the clothing that was found around her body. She was wearing a really, really baggy black hooded sweatshirt with a massive bright orange Deftones logo across the back and a smaller logo on the left sleeve, the, the side that would have been facing the road uh-huh. when Andrina made her sighting. She was also wearing extremely baggy trousers. So, again, very dark, not not lighter blue than than the top, because neither were blue. The trousers weren't blue either? No, they were black. Okay, so we have those two eyewitnesses. Luke finds the... Um, finds the body that they claim is, is guilty knowledge. And then we have the alibi issue, which I've read a little bit about. It's, it, it, and I'll let you explain it. It sounds like, like originally it sounded like he had an alibi, and then later his brother gave a statement that brought his alibi into question. His alibi was his mum and his brother. So Luke cooked dinner most nights, most weeknights, because his mum worked, his brother worked, he was in from school, so he'd start the dinner for them coming in from work. So they, they were his alibi, that that he was home, he'd cooked dinner, his mum had dinner out in the garden because it was a lovely summer evening. He bolted his because he wanted to get out to meet Jodie and his brother ate his dinner in his room because he was going out to see his girlfriend. That was the alibi. His brother had forgotten in his first statement that he was actually later home from work that evening because he'd stopped to help a friend fix his car. There was something wrong with his car and he picked up some some parts to go and fix the car on his way home. And while he was talking to his mum about that night, and he was he was confused because the police wanted to know what they had for dinner. And he, he was thinking, well, what's that got to do with anything? And he said to his mum, I don't know what we had for dinner, I can't remember. And his mum said, that was the night Luke burnt the pies that we were going to have for dinner. And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. So he called the police back to say that he had an amendment to make to his statement. Mm-hmm. So that was two days later. But they took another two days to come and get that amendment to his statement. So it looked like there was this huge gap between him giving his first statement and then coming up with this, oh, that was the night with the pies. When in actual fact, it was pretty much the day after that he actually contacted them. That was then used to suggest that his mother and brother were lying to cover for him because they couldn't get their story straight and that his mum had influenced his brother 
to change his story to say that he was definitely there and he'd burnt the pies. And then later, when when does it come out? Because what I've read online, at least, is that later Luke's brother says that he doesn't think Luke was there that day because he was he was watching pornography on his computer and he doesn't think he would have done that if Luke was there. That's that that's what is on the internet. Is that accurate? That's the prosecution presentation. Absolutely. That is what the prosecution presented to the court and put to his brother. That that was actually what he was doing and uh he wouldn't have done that had there been anybody else in the house. If you look at how that developed in court, and I, I touched on this a little bit last time, first of all, when the police arrested his brother on suspicion of perverting the course of justice in the, the April, the day that Luke was finally arrested, they treated him the same way as they treated Luke. So they bundled him into a police car, threw him in a room, no access to legal advice or representation, and they bombarded him with you know, we're not accepting, can't remember, we're not accepting, don't know. You're lying, you're, you know, you're covering for your brother, you will tell us the truth. If you don't tell us the truth, you're going to prison as well. This went on and on and on. And he did say, he did start off saying in court that they had confused him so much in that interrogation that by the time he left, even he wasn't sure what was and wasn't the case. But he had been sure before that interrogation. And he was quite clear about that. This was 10 months after the fact. And, yes. and I guess I didn't realize his brother was arrested yes. over that then. So, so that, that, that information came out during that interview 10 months later. And then when he was tested, when his brother was testifying in court, did he push back against this idea that he was watching pornography and Luke wasn't home? Again, he tried to explain the situation because the police had, had said, said to him, we've got evidence that you were watching pornography. And he, he kind of agreed, well, yeah, it might have been. Mm-hmm. Not, not realizing where this was going to fit into the narrative later. So when it comes up at trial, initially he's trying to push back. He's trying to say the police would not accept a single thing I said. No matter what I tried to tell them, they wouldn't accept it. And that's the point at which the prosecutor put the photos of Jody's body in front of them with no warning, just bam, there's the injuries, there's there's the dead body. And from that point in, I, I, I think he went into shock. And then suggestions were being put to him, and he was agreeing that it was possible. So the prosecutor prosecutor would say to him, and is it possible that you were watching pornography? And he said, yes, it's possible. And is it possible you were doing something else? Well, yes, it's possible. So so he's not agreeing that he was. Right. Agreeing with these suggestions being put to him that he could have been. That makes a lot more sense because that's, and I'm sure you're aware, like that's not really the narrative that is, you know, out on Reddit and other places on the internet. It makes it sound from what I read like, his brother came forward and said, I, you know, I want to come clean. I was lying. Luke wasn't home. That's not the case. Absolutely not. And at, at no point, even on the stand, did he say categorically, Luke was not home. Okay. He started off saying, I was sure he was. And then they confused me and I started to doubt 
whether I, I remembered him being there or not. But I can't now, you know, 19 months later, I can't say for sure one way or the other because I, I just, I don't know which of my memories to trust anymore. Right. So they, they've got those three things. They've got the, the guilty knowledge, the eyewitnesses, and, and the alibi falls up. They, you know, basically present a case that his family's lying for him. There's no alibi. And then there's, there are a few other kind of extemporaneous things that I've read about. There was, uh, one of them was that he had, a knife sheath with no knife in it that they were claiming he used. He did. Um, and it's been, there are a couple of things about this. He had written on it in Biro Jodie's birth year and the year she died. And the Kurt Cobain quote, the finest day I ever had was when tomorrow never came, which was Jodie's favorite Kurt Cobain quote. They used this to suggest that this was some sort of reminder of what he'd done. Now, it was distasteful. It was stupid. He was 14. Does it, does it say anything other than it was distasteful and it was stupid? I, I don't see it. I can see why people would think, what was he doing? Um, the idea that there was no knife to go with the pouch and therefore there was a missing knife. This is a huge area of confusion. And the prosecution capitalized well on that. They, they produced a replica of the knife that should have belonged to that chief at trial and, you know, showed it to the pathologist and, and said, could this knife have inflicted the injuries that were inflicted on Jody? And the pathologist said, well, it's possible but it's possibly too short. And then went on to, to demonstrate that there was a, an injury to Jodie's tonsil. The knife had been thrust through her mouth into her tonsil and went on to demonstrate that for that to have been the knife that inflicted that injury, it would have had to be held at the very, very tip of the handle for it to be able to reach. And any other sort of grip, there would have been damage to Jodie's teeth and damage to the attacker's hands. And it was neither. But they still persisted with this missing knife story. And then I read something about uh, a neighbor claiming they saw a fire in the backyard. And I believe that was presented as that Luke's mom was burning his clothes or burning evidence or something like that. Yes, the neighbor, there were 37 neighbors questioned because all the houses back onto each other. Mm-hmm. So you can't get into any of the back gardens without going through a house. The, the neighbours in that whole block and surrounding areas were asked about fires that night. And 35 out of 37 either said there was no fire or there's no recollection of a fire or there was nothing other than the smell of wood smoke, which there was quite often down there because there were lots of bonfires and gardens. The neighbours directly next door said they smelled wood smoke and that they didn't have to shut their kitchen window, which is only a matter of feet from Corrine's log burner, because they liked the smell of wood smoke. So we're down to one neighbour who said he didn't see a fire. And the way the gardens are set up, it would be you would see smoke above the fence lines, but it would be pretty difficult to tell which garden they were coming from. But his his significant information was that it smelled funny. It didn't smell like a barbecue or like wood smoke. 
And that's what led to the inference that that smell must have been burning clothing. And he never said that that smell was coming from their backyard. He never saw a fire. He never saw a fire. He, he assumed it was coming from their back garden. The only other thing I can think of, and then I'll see if, you, if there's anything else that I'm missing, let me know. But uh, there was some question about Luke not having a jacket. He had a, a, a jacket that was missing that night. So we're talking about the parka jacket here. Okay. Um, th- there was a claim that there was a missing parka jacket. Luke had been wearing a parka jacket when the murder was committed. They destroyed it in the log burner. His mother had destroyed it in the log burner and then bought him a replacement. She did buy him a, a parka on the, I think, the 7th of July, because in the, the July 4th raid, the police had taken all of his clothing. Mm-hmm. And when she came home, she handed the receipt for all the clothing, including the parka, to the liaison officer who'd been, who'd been in the family home since the 1st of July. Now, if she'd disposed of the original jacket on the night of the 30th, she then buys a replacement to hide the fact that there's a missing jacket and brings it into the house in full view of the liaison officer. So, so she's not exactly hiding it as a replacement, if that's what it was. You have to explain to me this liaison officer first. So the police put someone in their house who just stayed there? This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Liaison officers um, in the UK, most people believe they're there to keep families updated with developments in the case and to field media, to keep media away. So, So they're there to help. Now, at trial and at appeal, the defense QC, now Casey, um, Donald Finlay referred to her as a vixen in the hen house because what became apparent was that she was an investigating officer working on the investigation when she was put into Luke's family home. And then she just stayed there for how long? Uh, until the day before the 14th of August, Section 14 interview. So for, what's, what's that, six weeks, they just have a op- police officer living in their house? Not, not living, but with 
you know, she didn't stay at night, but she would come late at night. She would come at any time during the day. She led conversations with Luke. So, for example, the the whole Manson thing led to another conversation about a song about some guy killing his girlfriend. And this liaison officer noted in her notebook that Luke had spontaneously brought up the subject of this song and the lyrics. And then you go back to her notes and actually she's the one that introduced it to get him to talk about it in the first place. So so this officer is there with access to the family who thinks she's there to protect them. And she's actually in their home looking for anything she can use to give back to the investigation. Wow. That's that's different than what we deal with here. In regards to the parka, so there's she buys a parka. They say that he she had destroyed one. I, I'm assuming they're trying to. That's that must be why he has no blood because he was wearing a parka. Was he seen by anyone wearing that parka that night? There are no photographs of Luke in a parka at any point in the lead up to the murder, and none of his friends make any comment about him wearing a parka. Now, there was a teacher from St. David's High School, the school that Luke and Jody attended, who said that he remembered seeing Luke in the parka with the hood up in school prior to the murder and made a comment that he, he resembled a monk. But the implication was that Luke was the only person in the entire year who owned such a jacket, and that's why this guy remembered him. And then we find out in 2022 that the police went and took a parka from another schoolmate of Luke's and hid it. was never released to the defence. So this one student who wore the parka in school with the hood up looking like a monk, who stood out in this teacher's memory, if there was only one student in the school who had a parka. It wasn't Luke. Well, if they went and took one from somebody else and hid it, what does that tell you? Interesting. So is there is there anything else, any other kind of extemporaneous pieces of evidence that were used? Well, we know they used the Dahlia. They used the scribblings on his jotter to show his fascination with Satanism. Mm-hmm. Um, many of those scribblings being song lyrics or lines from computer games. What else was there? Oh, the tattoo. He had a tattoo after Jodie was murdered. And they claimed you have to be over 18 to have a tattoo in the UK. And Luke was only 15 at the time. And they claimed that essentially his mother was prepared to lie to the tattoo artist about his age. And if she she was prepared to lie about that, she could be prepared to lie about anything else. Wow. That's that's a stretch. So all of that together convinces the jury to convict Luke. Now, what was the... I just recently found out that, uh, see, in the United States, to convict, you have to have unanimous vote of the jury. That's not the case in Scotland, right? What what was the, the vote of the jury? We don't know. We know it wasn't unanimous. It has to be a majority. Now, in Scotland, we have 15 jurors. The rest of the UK has 12. Okay. And 
in Scotland, a simple majority is all that's required. So eight seven is enough for a conviction in Scotland. And and the the verdict came back pretty quickly, didn't it? For because it was what a forty two day trial, something like that. Yeah, forty two day trial. The jury retired on the Thursday afternoon, deliberated for approximately two hours, two and a half hours, and then were sent home by the judge, who said he had no issue that they might be got at with by outsiders or anything that they wouldn't talk to anybody. They came back the following morning and within an hour. So, so on the Thursday, when, when they were sent home, they said they were nowhere near a verdict. They came back in on the Friday morning and within an hour, they delivered their guilty verdict. So less than five hours. Was the press writing and, you know, like, in, of course, nowadays with social media and everything, but even in, in the States back then, there would be, constant updates like in the news and stuff about the trial and about you know what journalists thought about it was that going on during the trial yes yes very much so it was it was a huge story and is often the case with these the media coverage of cases like this lots and lots of emphasis on the prosecution case and the defense side barely mentioned played right down so all of the media attention was on the prosecution case pretty much all the way through and that's what the uh, the jurors would have been exposed to if they went yes. home and watched the evening news that night. Uh, and I think that's a good spot for us to wrap this before we move on to next week. We're going to talk about the defense side that wasn't being talked about the news. Uh, so that is the case against Luke. That's how the prosecution convicted him. And when we come back next week, we're going to talk about the case for innocence for Luke Mitchell. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Wood-Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review doesn't cost you a penny and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible if you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering you can submit your cases on our website truthandjusticepod.com just click on the case submission button and fill out the form and the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations 
can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.